0: hi guys welcome back to cultivating safe space i'm your host rachel and i'm denise and today we're going to be talking about intimate partner violence and how that affects both the people involved in the situation and therapists and clinicians who are treating yes (laughs) (laughs) all right so we're going to start with some common myths about domestic violence um we're gonna use the Arizona Coalition against domestic violence and spousal abuse. Some of the common myths that we see are that most of the time domestic violence is not really very serious. We see that victims provoke their partner's violence. Domestic violence is an impulse, control, or anger management problems. And it's easy for victims to leave their abuser. If they don't leave, it means that they like the abuse or they're exaggerating how bad it is. I think it's interesting to start there because we like to point out how a lot of people feel that way, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you think commonly to movies and things where people are like, oh, if they're just unhappy, they should leave, right? That's a very common misconception of domestic violence. And we hear friends and family, too, that like to say things like, well, if you're just so unhappy, just leave. And they don't understand the full impact of domestic violence. I think another issue that I have with the myths of abuse is that the myths they have towards the abuser, and they can range from... He was abused as a child, Um, he abuses the people he loves the most, he's holding in his feelings so much so he takes it out at home, Um, he has an aggressive personality, he loses control, he has low self-esteem, he's afraid of intimacy and abandonment, he's mentally ill, he has an anger problem, he's got poor communication skills, Um, all these things we see are myths that kind of permeate our society around intimate partner violence. Um, some of the other things we also see commonly blamed for intimate partner violence is substance use. So if there's mm-hmm. alcohol or drug use, people like to blame it on well he's only like that when he's intoxicated or when he's inebriated. Those things are kind of excuses, right, for this behavior. Um, I'm actually let Denise tell you some facts about <laughs> domestic violence.
1: Okay, let me just pull up my thing here. So, some statistics on domestic violence. On average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. One in four women and one in nine men experience severe intimate partner physical violence. Intimate partner contact sexual violence and or intimate partner stalking with impacts such as injury, fearfulness, post-traumatic stress disorder, use of victim services, contraction of sexually transmitted diseases, etc. So that is um, severe intimate partner violence. But then there's also one in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence. One in seven women and one in 18 men have been stalked by an intimate partner. Um the very interesting one here is the presence of a gun in a domestic violence situation increases the risk of homicide by 500 percent that is a very high number 500 percent. so the presence of a gun in a domestic violence situation increases the risk of homicide by 500 um so those are some some statistics it's not all of them this comes from the uh, national statistics domestic violence fact sheet from the ncadv.org
0: yeah, I'm going to pause this because I think the crazy thing to me is that before I became a clinician before I even had any experiences with being stalked being in intimate partner violence relationships I didn't know those things either right? and you feel very isolated as someone who's going through that and you really do have almost the other person convincing you, you're making it up, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you're being dramatic, it's not that bad, mm. well, you act this way, I wouldn't Ooh. do these things if you didn't make me. That gaslighting. Yeah, and it's a lot to kind of take in, right? And I, I'll share a little bit about my experience. I actually didn't recognize that some of the things I had been through would have been categorized as, like, abuse. And um, I'll never forget how I figured it out. I was in a training, so I was an intern, just fresh face, ready to start doing this training on domestic violence. And, um, the trainer started talking about like the power and control wheel and she was asking volunteers Mm -hmm. to kind of like read it. And as we're reading through it, I just felt numb, right? Like I didn't really feel anything. And so I started reading it. Um, and my turn came and I started reading and the trainer looked at me and she's like, you're crying. Like you're like sobbing. Like there are just tears running down your eyes. And so on the break, she like pulled me aside and she's like, I think you should talk to someone. And she's like, I don't know what's going on and you don't have to tell me anything, but I think you should talk to someone. And this is actually how I found my current therapist. <laughs> but, um, it was just, it was funny that it just all turned out that way. Cause sometimes you don't even realize it until, until you're reading about it. Right. And then you're like, Oh, that's what that was. Like, I'm not crazy like Mm -hmm. I didn't make this up I'm not the one sitting here thinking like oh it's just me (laughs) right like you just feel like it's just you and it's really isolating so then when you talk to like family members and friends and kind of depends right some of your friends are supportive and like get the heck out of there and sometimes your family's like well this is your choice like you're choosing to be here you put yourself in that situation Mm -hmm. and you don't have anyone right to turn to so it's hard sometimes to even recognize as the person in the situation that's what's happening i remember sitting at safe nest and having like doing the assessment and the guy stopped at the end of the assessment he goes i want you to understand what you're describing as financial abuse sexual abuse physical abuse and i was like what like this is insane and he's like this is every type of abuse that you can experience and as you're describing it this is what happened to you and i was like in disbelief right and it's wild because now as a therapist, like you see it more clearly having both been on the other side and being educated about it, um, than you ever would have before.
1: Yeah. And that's interesting that you point out you were a fresh faced, um, intern, right? It's that domestic violence has no bounds. It has no, um, limits. Anybody, anybody can be a victim of domestic violence, regardless of your, um, you know, your age, your gender, your, or your sex, your, um, financial, you know, situation, situation. Yes. Yeah, anything. Any that, yeah. It has no bounds. You were an educated woman, right? Uh, what? Well, yeah. At the
0: time I was finishing up my bachelor's. So this stuff all happened after I had left mm-hmm. the relationship. These are all things that I learned kind of after the fact. Um, I will say I think the hardest thing is just, like, you almost guilt yourself, mm-hmm. right? Like, you're like, I should have known better. Like, I have my bachelor's. I should know this stuff. Like, how yes. did I get here? And then you do start to be like, well, but I also did things, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you're you like, well, I, I yelled or I was aggressive and I didn't want him to leave or I did these things. And you really start to, like, try to almost, like, alleviate some of the blame to kind of smooth over the fact that that's what happened. And I think I saw... Um, advocate for for, um, intimate partner violence talking about how most of the time that happens as a reaction to what's happening to you. Uh, It's just wild to see.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So one of the reasons why we're talking about domestic violence, or I should say the reason, is that October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to make sure that we would be able to to bring that up as a topic And also, Rachel, for you, because you've you've described now being on both sides of the of that domestic violence spectrum is as a therapist, what can we do? What's what's available to us? I think the problem
0: is there's not a lot available to us. Right. Um, I know we were talking about kind of risk factors and things as a therapist. And currently in the literature that we were able to find, the only thing they really identify is that you as a therapist have to be, you become responsible for kind of how this person is now perceived, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're treating the, um, the survivor, then you're going to have to be very mindful of how you write your notes, any treatment plans that you make, what you word in your like assessments, because once the abuser or the perpetrator finds out that they are in therapy, especially if it's a messy custody battle or a divorce case, They are going to come after those notes. They will subpoena you, your records, and you have to be very mindful of how you document the things that you say about your client. The problem is there's nothing really in the literature that says how to keep yourself physically safe in these situations. And I do think that's important because as I was just telling you, Mm -hmm. when I first started this journey into becoming a therapist, I was in a class and a therapist that I was That was running the class, she's the professor. She was sharing with me a story about a therapist of her friend of hers who had been treating someone I guess who had a history of domestic violence and they became kind of enamored with her, created this relationship with her in their head that wasn't happening and knew what kind of vehicle she drives, Drived drove. (laughs) And when a day like she was out or he saw her vehicle out and he followed the vehicle and shot and killed the driver and took off. Well, he didn't know that the person in the car was her husband and they had swapped cars that day because he had to take her car to get serviced. And we don't talk about situations like that enough as therapists and the risk that brings to us when there's people who have been abusers are actively abusing or maybe have issues with violence um, just in general and how we keep ourselves safe. It's very surface, right? It's Mm -hmm. very much like, just keep your, just don't say anything, just kind of keep yourself closed off, do that. And it's really hard to do in the therapeutic relationship. So I wanted to talk about this because I think it's really important that we start discussing as clinicians, like how we keep each other safe, how we keep our clients safe, what are we doing? And I think we should be talking about this in schools more.
1: Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know if you remember, I brought up one example I had of, um, and it was just somebody else. Somebody else had an experience with a, a, uh, it was a parent of a client and they were very upset about having to be at the session. Mm-hmm. Right. And so of all people, it was the, the administrative assistant who told the therapist, if you don't feel comfortable, you can end the session early. Mm-hmm. And I, and I remember telling the you know the the admin worker like wow that's amazing I'm so glad that you said that because I don't know I don't know that anybody's ever told a therapist that if you feel uncomfortable you can end the session early Mm -hmm. you know and so a lot of the times we we are in situations where we're presented um we're presented with people who don't want to be there who are you know maybe they're court mandated maybe something's going on and you know, um, they don't agree with their child coming into therapy or whatnot. So a lot of the times are we are, we're put into places where people don't want to be there. Mm-hmm. um. And so what does that do for us is that we feel a pressure to, as a therapist, complete our task. Mm-hmm. But we're not told how to keep safe. Yeah. I also think we
0: have to remember that treating someone who is likely to be an abuser... Um, is a specialty. I think mm-hmm. a lot of times there's a lot of pressure on clinicians to be generalists and be able to treat Everything no matter what comes through the door. And I think some of this is specialty work I think a lot of misconceptions around this idea Like I said about abusers where they're like, oh, it's anger. It's this it's that you're maybe you're right Maybe some of it is anger, but I think when I look at it I think of Lundy Bancroft who is a phenomenal therapist. He works specifically with intimate mm-hmm. partner survivors or intimate intimate partner violence survivors and the abuser. So he does both. And one of the main things he talks about is that, yeah, anger management sounds great and we want to assume that it's an anger problem. But if it was an anger problem, this individual wouldn't be able to hold down a job. They wouldn't right. be able to function in society because he would have had issues or she would have had issues far before getting into this relationship with you. And so the fact that we're seeing people who have these issues so frequently and speaking out more often I have to say I don't believe that it's an anger problem and I think a lot of times in classes and in our internships people are just like oh just anger management like Mm -hmm. you just teach them anger management that's not really the issue right the issue is really power and control Mm -hmm. and it's not about oh I'm upset you pissed me off now I'm gonna do it it's about I'm in control here you are able you belong to me Mm -hmm. right it's this ownership that happens and as a therapist I don't know where we start to break that down. I'm going to be honest. I don't know what that looks like. Um, so I personally would never <laughs> work with an abuser because I wouldn't know what to do.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and I think sometimes it's hard because you don't always find that out until much later, right? Like yeah. you're in the process, you've kind of started going through some stuff with them and then you're starting to recognize patterns and you're like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. What do I do now? And I think another thing that's really hard is... As a therapist, a lot of times the only guidance you get is don't treat if there's active domestic violence. And you're like, okay, okay. great. What else? Like, yeah. what's next? How do I help? Um, and I'll share another story. I had a couple clients come in one time. My wife was pregnant. My husband was like, I really want to fake this relationship. I really want to make it work. blah, blah um come to find out there had been a history of abuse in their relationship and he was adamant it could be fixed it was no big deal and she sat in my office and I was like we need to come up with you know goals for each other and he's like well I actually want to make this work I got to figure this out and she's like I also want to make this work but I need to just figure out how it works for us co-parenting and I was like so you want to stay together or you want to separate and co-parent she's like I'd like to separate and co-parent and when you have that happen in your office you then become this mediator right mm. because if there's a history of of abuse and their goals aren't aligned and as an intern i'm like uh okay great wonderful There's no one in that moment to, like, guide you on what to do. You're just kind of blindsided. Yeah. And so, obviously, what I did is I was like, okay, well, let's have you guys both step out. We'll do individual, and then you can come back as a couple if you decide that you want to stay together. And when I referred them both for individual counseling, luckily, he didn't blow up, right? Because that wasn't what he came there for. He thought he was in control of his session, and he wanted to do therapy with his spouse. And that's not what happened. Um. I honestly don't know what happened to them. They never Mm. came back after that. So, again, that's where the risk, right? When you leave, that's the highest, that's the most likely time for you to incur physical violence or death, right? Is when you choose to leave. So, that is something also to keep in mind and being very careful as therapists how we navigate that with clients who maybe are in relationships where there's intimate partner violence and they're expressing that they want to leave coming up with safety plans and what does that look like? How do you keep yourself safe when you do decide to leave?
1: And I wanna point out that one of the, or the reason why we don't treat when there is active domestic violence is that safety is one of our basic needs. And so if we don't have safety in the home, there's there's no point. (laughs) yeah of therapy well, it's not there's, to productive, no it's right? it's not. Like, there's nothing you to build resolve? on yeah. yeah there's nothing to build on that there's no safety foundation to for those building blocks of um, you know therapeutic progress and so I wanted to point out also with um with safety is that when you, when we as therapists look for information on how to um how to treat therapists right you talked about this a lot of the a lot of the literature that came back was um was safety planning and essentially like supporting the the victim and there wasn't much about ourselves so i don't know if what is there for us to do i i don't know if i'm being honest i
0: think that's why we wanted to start the conversation is because what do we do we don't want to leave somebody hanging who needs help but also we don't want to put ourselves in a situation where we're opening our, our own homes up to violence. Um, it's a really thin line mm-hmm. that you walk. And I think sometimes as therapists, we have to be careful um, in even directing clients and where to go. I think that's why like I said at the beginning, there is such a specialty for treating yes. um, intimate partner violence because it does take a network. Um, so when I think of it, I think of places like Safeness, right? Where it's like a central location, mm-hmm. employees kind of park somewhere else so you don't really see their vehicles and you're like surrounded by this network of people everybody kind of leaves together comes in together so there's really not quite the same you know what i mean individual chances for people to get to you i also think too as therapists we have to be careful about the harm we cause our our survivor or our clients right the survivor so if they're coming in and they're in this relationship And they're telling you, I think we just talked about this research article that I read about how therapists are really not that good at recognizing Mm -hmm. what intimate partner violence is taking place in a relationship. And again, I'll share a little bit of my experience. I remember being in therapy for a while and talking to somebody about just some of the emotional abuse. Obviously, I'll call it that now. I didn't realize it at the time that was going on. And that therapist's response to me was like, let's do a couple session." And the person I was with at the time came in and we talked and the therapist sided with everything that he said. She's like, yeah, you are this and you are that and this is happening and you do need to do this. And I'm like, oh my God, like I'm the problem. It's me. And so you have to be really careful that you don't also create like re-victimize your clients in your office and also being able to recognize those um, those markers, right? Like yeah. the gaslighting and the blame shifting and all of that that's going on in that relationship. Because if someone is telling you, you know, I made breakfast and I don't know, he didn't like it. So he threw the bowl at my face and you're like, Oh, well, you know, maybe you should have tried harder. Like, is that, <laughs> is that what we should be how are we keeping the victim safe there? Um, so some of that, like I said, it's just awareness. Yeah. Um, but I think it is sad to hear that out of, I don't know, like almost 120 therapists were able to recognize that intimate intimate partner violence was taking place and none of them were able to recognize how deadly it actually was I don't know that this is an answer we can come up with just kind of off the top of our heads I think this is going to be um a systematic thing right we as a field have to look at how do we protect not just ourselves and our victims but how do we identify it so that we're less likely to see our our clients and in murder suicide or Mm -hmm. just murder in general like how are we protecting that so we can identify and shift
1: our clients into a safer environment so the literature that i had looked at had like 50 (laughs) that's what it seemed that's an exaggeration but it probably had like five (laughs) safety assessments um and assessments for um, danger assessment. It had an assessment for IPV an assessment for, you know, so much more, but you're right. This is a specialty. If you're a general therapist, um, or a general provider and you, you come across a case like this, you might not know that there, you know, that there are such assessments for that, you know, especially when we're doing just like the basic assessment that we're used to, or, you know, you're doing the assessment that you have at your job. Um, there are other assessments that you can look at to help guide and identify if you have those little, you know, therapist spidey senses. It's mm-hmm. like, hmm. Something there might- feels off here. Yeah, yeah. something's <laughs> off. There must be something else going on. You, There are assessments available to you in order to do that. Now, I think what's important also is that if you feel that it is outside of your scope of practice. So this Absolutely. is kind of what I go to. That's my, my go to is, is, all right i 'm overwhelmed by this situation or this case or this thing because I feel like i 'm not enough i'm I, adequately trained right yeah. i 'm not adequately trained or this is something that i 'm not necessarily used to and and i don 't think a little bit of research is going to be able to help me mm-hmm. we're we're in our out of scope place, and so when you are um, when you encounter a situation a case um a p a client that you feel is out of your scope of practice, it is important to refer them to somebody else who specializes in that area or who has more um, knowledge in that area because we don't, like you said, Rachel, we don't want to do more harm to our to our clients. Um, and also that's a, a protection for ourselves is that we should not be working with clients that we're not adequately equipped for. Absolutely.
0: I also want to point out too, sometimes I think... There's... I mean, I say this, and I'm going to regret it, but I'm going to say it. I think sometimes you have to remember that there are certain dynamics that might resemble a type of abuse that might be cultural, right? Mm. So, like, I'm thinking of, it as you were talking, I was thinking of kind of, like, the verbal abuse, right, that mm-hmm. takes place. And then I'm thinking of, like, even my own family. We can be kind of mean, right? But it doesn't ever come from this place of wanting to cause harm. It's always, like, in jest, right? It's yeah. It's how we communicate. Like, I've had people who have come from, I guess, healthier homes <laughs> that are like, your family is so mean. I'm like, really? That was really nice. That was a great <laughs> interaction. What are you talking about? And so sometimes some of that is there too. So I think it's the hard part. And I'm going to say this is being able to flesh out all of the details, right. And mm-hmm. understanding where is, where's is your client's experience landing and how is the behavior they're telling you about, um, impacting their functioning right so if you have a, a woman who's maybe in your office or a man and they're like yeah my girl always is like what a you know dumb word or whatever something i don't know some curse word like that she, maybe she calls him a bitch i don't know mm-hmm. and i'm like you right that's crazy and you're like is that abuse are you being abused and they're like what no that's just how we talk to each other mm-hmm. like, that's not a bad thing be mindful of that right because we don't all we also don't want to start over assuming right. that abuse is taking place when it's not um, so, I wanted to point that out, but I think i 'm with you. If you feel like it's outside of your scope of practice, absolutely refer out and I think building a resource for yourself mm-hmm. of specialists right so thankfully, here in Las Vegas, we have um, a Facebook group, so we can kind of always ask around and figure out who does specialize and has openings and maybe even takes the client's insurance if we're lucky um And that is really helpful, but I I think there's a difference, right, in what you're describing where you're like, uh, I can Google a couple of interventions and I feel good about it, or like find research to kind of support what I already know, Mm -hmm. and I think that's different than having to like find an intervention for something you have no idea how to treat. So I think having those two like differentials is really important, just in treatment in general. But then I think... Just the resource is going to be the most important part for yeah. treating something you don't know. Um, my fallback is always protect your client. Um, if you have a client in your office, it's like, I understand that you don't you know normally work with victims of domestic violence, but you've been working with me for like three months and I'd really like to continue to work with you. If maybe you're an attachment tra- mm-hmm. attachment-focused attachment trauma therapist, okay, go from that lens. Work from there. Can you address what they're trying to resolve? Um, but don't ever try to put yourself in a situation where you're like, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep trying and keep trying because I have to be able to do this. You don't, you don't. I just want somebody to hear me say that you don't, you don't have to be the perfect therapist. You don't have to be the therapist for everybody. Um, don't ever put yourself in a situation where you feel uncomfortable either.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important to note also when we have our own personal experiences, right, that might that might also change our lens into how we view a situation. Mm-hmm. And so you described your own personal experiences. And so um, sometimes it's easier as us for us practitioners when we do have experience with some specific kind of trauma. It's easier for us to do our work when we don't work it. <laughs> where our trauma was yeah. if that makes sense <laughs> like absolutely you know that that is also um important for ourselves i think to note moving forward is that you know were you sexually abused as a child did you experience you know a rape or something that might, that might trigger you as a practitioner to work with those kind of clients. So that might be a line that you draw. And so one of the things that we do as therapists is we're, we're constantly teaching boundaries. Well, we also have to have boundaries for ourselves. And there are lines for ourselves that we should be okay to say, you know what, I'm not comfortable in that area. Well, um, I think you bring up a really good point go about
0: being careful about kind of activating your own trauma responses through the work that you do with your clients. Because I mean, I don't know about you, but I remember being told, like, as a therapist, have a therapist, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you have to be doing your own work to be able to do this work. And I think what you're talking about tells me that as a therapist, like, you're right, right? When I first started, I was like, oh, that's emotional abuse. Every- like, I, I yeah. can see it everywhere, right? <laughs> Everything is this. And having, once I started doing my own work, I'm like, oh, no, that's my own lens. Like, I'm yeah. over here looking at you through my life, and that's not okay. And so having to learn to step out, yes. right? To pull yourself out of your clients. And by that, I mean, like, separate the two. Mm-hmm. Because I think sometimes, and I think this is what happens with very green interns, is we we see where our clients need to be. And we want yes. them there. So then we want to push them where we think they should be. And then that takes away from what they're actually capable mm-hmm. of, right? Because then you're not listening to your client. I can't tell you how many times I've staffed with uh, therapists that are like, oh, my client just needs to do this and they'll be great, blah, blah. Is that what they want, though? Is that the (laughs) life that they want for themselves? Can they maintain that on their own if they don't see you? If the answer is no, then that's what your goal is for your client. That's not their goal for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important, too, especially if you're working with someone who is kind of hinting at, right, that there's some violence in their relationship or some emotional or verbal abuses taking place. Be Very gentle, right? Like, and I don't mean that in a way of like handhold and baby talk, but just be careful around how you reframe the things that they're saying, right? Because that's what we do, right? So if they're like, oh, you know, he always throws this around and this around, and I say he because that's just my lens, okay? And so you're always saying these things and then you're looking at it and you're like, yeah, this is a really consistent pattern that you're telling me that this happens and then you feel this way. You can point those patterns out, but be careful to be like, oh, so you're being emotionally abused. Got it. Like, yeah. Don't define it for them. It's almost like leading the horse to water. Yeah. Right? I want you to drink, but I can't force you.
1: That's kind of how I think of that. Yeah. to come For them to come to their own realization without you... Mm -hmm. pointing it out
0: or even pushing your own agenda right because you're you're trying to heal your trauma through healing their trauma Mm -hmm. and that doesn't that's not how that works you gotta do your own work so you can help them do their work because your version of healing might not be their definition of healing so it's very important to keep those two things separate right and this is when you start you want to make sure you guys are aligned like they're like this is what I'd like to be this is where I'd like to be how do we get there
1: yeah. And then you're just
0: guiding them to their own journey. You cannot be the one to put the blinders on and put them on the track. You can't do that. Yeah. Because <laughs> then they're gonna fall off the minute you're no longer in their lives.
1: That it reminds me of something that uh my supervisor once said, which was that you should never be doing more work than the client. I <laughs> <laughs> And I think, from personal experience, if you find yourself feeling a little bit tired or mm-hmm. feeling a little bit overwhelmed or even dreading a um session. a session with this particular client, that might be a time to step back and reflect on your own work absolutely. as a therapist <laughs> and um you might be doing more work than the client, mm-hmm. you know, and that's absolutely right is that we do a lot of the times we see where where you know, they should be, we see their capability, also their potential, right, that Mm -hmm. we see that, but they don't see that in themselves, maybe they haven't unlocked it yet, you Mm -hmm. know, and maybe that's not what they want, and Mm -hmm. so we should not be doing the work for them, they need to be doing that work on them, for themselves.
0: I also want to add that sometimes the, there's another truth that can be there, there can be a reflective aspect right of that client so maybe you're feeling overwhelmed and you want to avoid the session you don't really want to go in because something in them is reminiscent of something in you right so it's very important to always be kind of reflecting and looking and i agree with you i think if you feel yourself Mm -hmm. you know you're like oh i have this client at six and i just hate seeing them why like pay attention to that <laughs> key into that what is that because that's going to give you more insight yeah. right about not just yourself but your client and where you're at therapeutically in that mm-hmm. relationship are you too enmeshed are you too distant mm-hmm. um are you seeing too much of yourself in that are you overly invested and you're doing more work than that client like be paying attention to those things i think they're very important I think we're a little off topic and that's okay. Um, we'll go back to intimate <laughs> partner violence. I think, too, as a clinician, we need to be um, assessing our own biases when it comes mm-hmm. to intimate partner violences. What myths do we believe? What... Um, what preconceived notions do we have about people who are in these relationships who are like being abused and what me- preconceived notions do we have about people who are doing the abusing like wh- yeah where are you in that and i think that will color how you see abuse in relationships how you respond to people in these relationships and whether or not you feel competent to treat those things right because mm-hmm. some people are like i know all there is to know i got it
1: do you mm-hmm. <laughs> are you sure yeah So, going back to what we, um, where we started was, we talked about some myths of domestic violence, right, um, myths of the abuser, we talked about some facts available, um, to us regarding domestic violence, we talked about help for therapists, which was really minimal, because mm-hmm. a lot of the help for therapists come in the form of guides for how treating. to work and treat um, victims of domestic violence, and then we kind of um, talked about, like, our our own perspective of of, you know, treating within your scope of practice, referring out if you need to um being reflective of our own work and biases and I mean how I don't know that did we talk about safety for ourselves I
0: don't think so. I think we kind of touched on it but like we said there wasn't a ton of research on that I also want to add something that you had pointed out that I didn't even think about is kind of like how these intimate partner of like violence like traits can be present like in your workplace mm. um i wanted to point that out because i know sometimes we only think of intimate partners because like, you mentioned stalking yeah like, stuck with me i don't know why but um i wanted to point out that, that can happen to you too at work right so sometimes you don't have to be like in i know intimate partner violence and domestic violence is, is defined as violence that takes place between either a spouse ex-spouse partner or former or current partner. Um, regardless of everything around you. I also want to point out that some of these things can still happen to you in relationships at work, right? So maybe you don't know that a coworker has a crush on you and now they're following you around, showing up where you are, um, maybe making comments and doing things to kind of make your job harder, finding ways to be in the same area that you're in. These things can happen at work as therapists Mm -hmm. in mental health and... I mean, obviously, in every field, but I just want to say, like, as therapists, too, be mindful of that because it can happen there. And when it is happening, how do we protect ourselves? I don't have that answer. Yeah. Because a lot of times people don't believe you. Right? The truth is that people will tell you, you're just being nice.
1: Mm.
0: Why Why are you being so mean? Why don't you give them a chance? And it's like, no, you're not respecting my boundaries. Right. That's why. You're showing me early that you are not going to respect me as a person. Um, And I think some of that does come down to not seeing people, certain people, maybe depending on your orientation, any of that, um, as, like, people. You see them as, like, things and items to be possessed or something you really want, so you go after it. Not
1: in the most appropriate ways. Mm. That's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. It sucks. It's really hard. I feel really <laughs> I think while we were doing the research, I felt really helpless to be mm-hmm. honest. Like I felt, you know, what is what is available to us? How do we get protected? And even thinking about it, um, you know, you had mentioned that professor who had a colleague who was followed and or, you know, they thought they were following the therapist and they were following the husband, but it reminds me of our workplaces. So like for me, I'm typically the last one to leave the office and that's a, that's scary mm-hmm. i don't why yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you it's know it's hard to
0: like be mindful of who's around you when you leave yeah right? and you're kind of like i don't know about you i know when i leave i'm like okay who's car is yes, here yeah. i kind of like creep to see if i see any of my clients sitting in their cars mm. before i go out to my car um, i try really hard to be mindful of like when i leave after my clients yeah. leave um, unfortunately, I probably didn't do myself a ton of favors by having a custom license plate. And I had a few clients tell me that they've seen my car. Um, but I've never been worried about safety with the clients who have. I currently have. I'm not worried about my safety mm-hmm. with any of my caseload. Um, but I know, I don't know what I would do if, if I was. Yeah. Just because I... I'm not going to go change my license plate now. I've had it for 5 years, right? Yeah. And I'm not going to go out of my way to not go home, especially if I have um a telehealth session or something. After yeah. in-person sessions, I have to be on time. So, yeah, I'm with you. I I feel super helpless about. I don't know how to tell you to protect yourself other mm-hmm. than to just be vigilant, mm-hmm. and that feels a lot like are society's
1: yes. kind of answer to
0: problems, right? If you're saying, like, oh, I've been sexually assaulted, then society's like, well, what did you do?
1: What did you wear? Yeah. The, how, oh how did God. you set this up, Yeah.
0: Right? And a lot of times that's the same mentality they have with domestic mm-hmm. violence. Like, well, how, how come you didn't know he was like this? Right. Why didn't you know know leave? Your partner, yeah. Why didn't you know your partner was like that before you married them? Yeah. Uh, because you didn't know me. They were like that until after I told you. So that's
1: how, like, one of the things you brought up was the, why didn't you leave sooner? Which you actually brought it up. There's a, um, there's some celebrities in the, I guess in the spotlight for domestic violence, Mm -hmm. which is, um, Angelina Jolie and Brad Brad Pitt. Pitt. Yep. They just came into the spotlight recently. And I know another famous trial was, um, Amber Heard Mm -hmm. and Johnny
0: Depp um and even in that everyone is so divided right yes. like, there's so much division in whether you believe someone has been abused or not um even i think the reason i brought up Angelina Jolie because the first thing i saw when it the headline came up was people were like why didn't you say something sooner yeah. oh i don't believe you because you're just now bringing it up why are you bringing it up mm-hmm. now and it's like to me that just um confirms like this is why people don't report yes. right so this is an underreported phenomenon that's happening all over the world yeah and i know that the one of the research articles i read was saying like in 20 years we've only come from like what they said two percent to 10 20 yeah. or something like that of therapists who are like more aware and it's like what's what's happening what's different yeah and it's just that we're talking about it more but nobody's believing you more, right? It's the same situation um, a couple of friends of mine have been in where they've been cyber stalked, where people have stolen their photos of like them and their children or them and their family members. And when you go to the police, the first thing they say is, well, we can't do anything because they haven't physically harmed you. Mm-hmm. And you can't do anything, even if they show up at your house, because mm. then you become the perpetrator. And if you try to find any information about this person, well, we will charge you with stalking. Uh-uh. And it's like, hold on. I'm here because I'm being like I don't know I guess I don't cyber harmed right yeah in this way, like someone is taking my photos against my will and putting them in places and claiming me and my child as someone that yeah. I am not to them and you're telling me that I'm gonna get in trouble if I defend myself or if I say anything you're telling me that it's my yeah. fault like that's the attitude and if that's just just that's how it starts right like if you're having that that mentality around me telling you that I'm feeling violated online and when i'm telling you i'm being violated in my own home of course i'm not going to report it yeah and if i say something and people go well why would you post those uh oh my gosh okay i'm gonna disclose i watched the um most hated man on the internet i don't know if you saw that um so i was a scene kid i know who hunter Moore is i had friends who were on anyone com, all of these things and so I remember all of this. I'm like reliving it, watching it. And it's the same mentality that he mentioned. If you didn't want me to get those photos, you shouldn't have taken them.
1: Mm. If
0: you didn't want other people to see them, you shouldn't have sent them to anyone. And that mentality just burns me because then you're blaming someone for trusting someone else right? Like I trusted you mm-hmm. to share, you know, this per this personal nude of me, um, because you, we were going back and forth and I didn't think you would violate me in that way. I'm trusting that I can put an innocent picture of myself and my child on my personal page. And you, nobody in here is going to give it to somebody. I don't want to yes. have it. Right. I'm trusting that you're not going to go and share it with your, I don't know, weird third cousin who has crushes on little kids. I'm hoping Ugh. that that's what's happening. Right. And, for you to say, well you're at fault for posting it, no, you're at fault for violating my trust it's the same thing same mentality as intimate partner violence. I'm not at fault for staying mm-hmm. I'm not at fault for becoming a survivor of domestic violence you're at fault for abusing me yeah, that's not my fault, right yeah, and I think some of that is why it's hard to find research around, yeah. like how do you protect yourself, how do you protect your client?" Because we still don't blame the person doing the harm for doing the harm. We're blaming the person for being harmed.
1: Yeah, So I think that's a
0: huge part of it.
1: Which I want to point out with the... um, I think we talked about power and control. And there Mm -hmm. is a power and control wheel. And basically it's three three sections, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the... um, Loving everything is great. Maybe like gift giving. Then there's the anxiety phase, mm-hmm. which is like you know they're on edge kind of thing. Then there's the abuse part where the you know some kind of abuse occurs. Mm-hmm. Then it goes back to there's they're loving, they're gift giving. And you're describing like love bombing. Yeah, right? so it just and goes so in it a cycle.
0: This like the love bombing happens, and you know the abuse isn't far behind, mm-hmm. right? So that in between stage of like the love bombing and the abuse is this. Heightened hyper state where you're just like okay something's gonna go wrong something's gonna go wrong, and again it just it kills me right because even in there's a secondary wheel that they have for domestic violence that kind of lists like the different types of abuse and how that's power and how it's control, and it. It's just I just sometimes feel like it's not enough uh, mm-hmm. to just have those wheels to talk about, yeah. um, and not identify like how this is a pervasive issue in society.
1: Yeah, when I wanted to point out the other thing in the in the domestic violence cycle was that there is also learned helplessness from mm-hmm. the victims themselves, and essentially what it means is that they've experienced abuse so often that they've just kind of um, stopped fighting.
0: I also want to give a sec, like a secondary a definition of that is that they've told enough people who don't believe them that they don't feel that anyone's ever going to help or there's nothing that they can do because no one yeah, believes them.
1: There's no hope. Mm-hmm. So keeping that in mind, I think that's important for um, a narrative that we need to put out into the larger part of society mm-hmm. in that there are reasons why, you know, People who experience domestic violence don't speak up sooner because Mm -hmm. they're being gaslit into believing that... They're somehow part of the problem mm-hmm. um, by the abuser, so and then
0: it. and then society, yeah, and yeah. Then society,
1: girl. Okay, society when you did it. <laughs> you're like, hey, what? So, how do we expect people to leave sooner? How did we expect Angelina Jolie to speak, out, speak sooner. out sooner when we have this kind of mentality? And now we're we're victim blaming and saying, "Well, now I'm not sure that I believe you because now you're saying it years later." Like, hello, guys, come on. I th- so, you said that,
0: and I, I don't know if anybody that listens to our podcast watches P-Valley, but it made me think of this. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, one of the characters in the show is in a v- domestic violence relationship. Um, they have been for a Whoa. long time. They have two children together with this person. Um, and there's a point in the story where they are away from the home, and the partner is taking care of the children. Um, they come back, and one of the children has huge bruises Whoa. on their back. And this person loses their mind. They're like, don't, you can hit me. I don't care. Don't touch mm. my children. Right. Like, and the mentality there is that she's tried to leave, I think four or five other times. And I think the, the, um, the research backs up. It takes about seven times before, some, before someone is able to leave a domestic violence relationship and stay gone. It's about seven times before they actually get to go. Um, and so she comes back and she decides she's done. She's going to leave. She takes um, the kids to her mom actually there's two attempts so one she tries to drive off while he's at work or at an interview and he has taken the spark plug out of her car mm. so she's unable to leave um, the second time she takes the kids to her mom or her stepmom, so that she can go um, get money to like take the kids away she gets back to get the kids and the stepmom's like I don't know why you keep trying to leave him he's such a good man and he came and picked them up while you were out here running the streets Ooh. and she's like that's I didn't want them to go there that's why I brought them to you she gets there um so mind you after finding the bruise that she takes them to the kid to the doctor the doctor i believe makes a cps report um she comes home this is like weeks later the partner then calls cps to say that he's concerned about her so she shows up and the social Mm. worker is um or the case worker i don't know if it's a social worker we always assume they're social Mm -hmm. workers Um, The caseworker is, like, in the process of interviewing the partner and talking about, like, what can happen to the children and all of this. And this person has been abused for eight, nine years. And she loses it. Like, she flips out. And she's like, how fucking dare you do this to me? And she attacks him in front of the caseworker. because she's so upset because she's been trying to leave, trying to leave. And I think, actually, I think it was her mom. I don't think it was the partner. I think it was her stepmom who called social services on her. And so she attacks him, and he's like, oh, oh, I don't know why she's doing this. Like, mm. just plays the victim. She gets arrested. And I want to just, I bring this up because we just said society's response. Society's response to that scene in that show was, well, she should have known better. She shouldn't have lost her cool. Now mm-hmm. it's her fault. Look what she's done to her family. hmm This is a reaction to long-term abuse, to someone using the system to maintain control over you. Because his whole mentality was, you are not leaving me until I allow you. Mm. How helpless do you think someone feels in that situation? And then to see society and the system back up that person that you are trying to get away from, that's not that, it's not her fault for reacting the way she did. That's years and years of frustration and trying to go, coming out physically. Yeah. And I think until we shift... The blame from the victim to the abuser in our society, we're gonna continue to miss the cues.
1: Yeah. And that was the reactions you were speaking about. These are um like the viewers' reactions. Mm-hmm. These are viewers' reactions. Okay, so let's point out that these are viewers' reactions to a to a dramatic scene that's Correct. uh like right. written, right? Mm-hmm. It's a script, it's not real. Right. However, these are very real kind of situations. Mm-hmm. These, are, these are things that actually do happen to people out there. And so we're having these type of reactions to, to fiction, to yeah. scripted <laughs> scenes. Like, okay, we, we, we need to check ourselves. Why are we responding like that? But also remember that if you're responding like that to a scripted scene
0: online, um, mm-hmm. in social media, the social media sphere... You may have friends who are seeing what you yes. are saying about this this character who is going through something similar, who now will never trust you to tell you what's going on, who is now feeling like, well, I can't do anything, I can't say anything, because you're not going to believe me anyway.
1: Right. And please
0: remember, too, I think in Las Vegas, or I don't know if it's Nevada in general, but in Las Vegas, if someone calls the police on a domestic situation, both parties get arrested, and those mm-hmm. children go to Child Haven so a lot of people choose not to report to save their kids because then once you're in that system it is so hard to get your yes. children back so hard because then you have to do all of these classes and prove all of these things yeah and you're the one who called for help mm-hmm. you can be not living with their father or mother and they show up at your house and you call the police both of you are arrested how is that supportive or conducive of asking for assistance?
1: Yeah. I've had also, Um, I used to work at the protection order office. And mm-hmm. a lot of cases we would get would be parents who had children in common. And a lot of the times the abuse wasn't overt mm-hmm. so it would constantly get referred to as that well that's a custody case that's a custody case and it gets dismissed yeah mm-hmm. it gets dismissed so yeah essentially they needed to figure out custody but what we didn't see was you know these um really like i said not really overt abuse mm-hmm. and yeah. that's that sucks right like you're you're a victim of something and then here you are like continue to be victimized in within our system yeah
0: that's tough and of course i think that goes back to learned helplessness like no one's coming to -hmm. to save you Mm -hmm. yeah yes so i think to wrap it up the reason we want to talk about it is because exactly what we said a lot of people need help and we don't have enough support as clinicians providers agencies to assist, identify, and remove people from these situations, let alone as a society to believe and support people. So it is important to continue to talk about what intimate partner violence looks like. um, We as therapists, how are we handling it
1: when it shows up in our offices? And what are we doing to keep ourselves safe? Yep. And so with that, we will see you guys later on the next time.